and um, we like to tease Blake and say he looks like Joe Osteen. So <laughs> that's just not fair. That's just not fair. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Blake is a good buddy of mine. I've gotten to know him through um, just uh, a pastor's network I'm a part of called Nine Marks Ministries, which is trying to help churches think about being the church biblically as opposed to a lot of different directions the church can go. So uh, it's been great getting to know Blake. And uh, he's at a Baptist church in Cheshire, Connecticut called uh, Grace. Grace, Grace, Grace Baptist Church. So uh, it's great to hear from him. He's going to bring the word to us from Luke this morning. So can we just give Blake a welcome this morning? Oh, yeah. And, uh, can we have the children, kindergarten to second grade, be dismissed to Children's Church? It's a joy to be here with you this morning, to be able to bring God's Word to you. I thank you, Jeremy, for the privilege of being able to preach to this year congregation. And I praise God more than that for calling me out of darkness into His light and to be able to preach His Word. Uh, I bring you greetings from Grace Baptist Church in Cheshire, Connecticut, uh, who have been praying for you. And uh, so this morning, if you would take your Bibles, Jeremy said we're going to be in Luke, and we are Luke chapter 9. So if you take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9, if you'd like to use the Bibles located in the pew racks in front of you, this morning's passage is on page 1026. 1026, Luke chapter 9. There are biblical passages that to modern ears sound strange. Things like Balaam's talking donkey, uh, the witch at Endor, people being miraculously healed as they touch Paul's handkerchief. 3,000 people are saved on the day of Pentecost, and Peter didn't even use one PowerPoint presentation. To our modern ears, things like that sound strange. I mean, they just don't occur regularly. And I think that oftentimes we downplay them. We don't want to talk about them much. They sound odd. And the text that we're going to be looking at today is one of those stories that seems quite odd to us. So if you have turned to Luke 9, look at verse 28 and follow as I read the account of Jesus' transfiguration. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken... Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now, we have in this account Jesus' face and his clothes change. We have the presence of men who have been dead for centuries. 
We have a talking cloud. I mean, this sort of thing isn't what convinces 21st century scientific-minded rational people of the veracity of the Bible. But here we find it. In all of its strangeness and all of its antipathy to modern ears, we have here an occasion for ourselves this morning to, to bend our ears to what we expect. Instead of hearing what we expect, and we get to hear what Scripture says occurred. And God has determined that this is something that we need to hear. This is something that we need to believe. And so he has placed this in his word. Once we accept the reality of this, which most of us have already committed to do, I'm assuming, but once we have committed to believe this, it becomes, I think, apparent why we need to hear this, why we need to think about this this morning. This account, called the Transfiguration, records for us the inbreaking of God's glory into human history. This account specifically helps us to see the inbreaking of Jesus' glory. And we know from other texts that Jesus, he veiled his glory. He covered it over, if you will. Paul says that he emptied himself, which doesn't mean that he no longer possessed the attributes of divinity. It means that he put a cover, cover over them so that, so that he could carry out his saving work. In this brief instance that we read and that we're going to be looking at this morning, Jesus allows Peter and James and John to see just a small portion of that which Jesus normally veiled. And we should note, and you should see, this, it scared them. What they saw in this was that Jesus was much bigger and much more terrifying than they had ever imagined. So since that's what's going on in this passage, it should be no surprise to us that it's, it's strange to our human ears what happens here. Heaven isn't a place that we figured out. The glory of Jesus is not something that we have a handle on. It's not something that we can say, oh, that makes total sense to me. I understand it perfectly. We can't do that. When the finite comes into unmediated contact with the infinite, we can expect that there will be something unusual about the experience. There will be. Again, remember, God didn't write His Word for the curious, but for the faithful. So you might find as you read this that your curiosity is piqued. It will be provoked, but it will be unfulfilled because the Word doesn't answer our questions. I mean, you may think of things such as, okay, Jesus' face was changed. How was it changed? How did His clothing become white? Okay, how did Moses and Elijah get there? I mean, think about this. The resurrection of the just hasn't happened. So did the Father just give them temporary bodies for that purpose? Did they appear bodily at all? Why was it Jesus, Moses, and Elijah? Why were they talking about Jesus going to Jerusalem? You might wonder why it was only Peter, James, and John who were there. You might wonder, how did Peter, James, and John know that it was Moses and Elijah? I mean, they had never seen them before. There's mysteries on top of riddles, on top of enigmas in this account, none of which come to a resolution. But that is not the point of this account. It's not to answer all of our curious questions. That's not the point of this. So what does this passage teach us? I think that this shows us three things. And so if you're taking notes this morning, here are the three items that we're going to be looking at. We're going to see Jesus' glory unveiled. 
We're going to see His mission disclosed. And we're going to see the Savior revealed. So Jesus' glory unveiled, the mission disclosed, and the Savior revealed. And each of these is radically Christ-centered. So let's begin with the first one. Jesus' glory unveiled. As I've already said, this is a small unveiling of the glory of God, particularly the glory of Jesus. In typical Luke-like fashion, Jesus, or excuse me, Luke understates the magnitude of what's happening. He says in verse 29, so if you look down at verse 29, As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. I mean, Luke just, just says his face was different and his clothing was white. Uh, verse 31 gives us the biggest hint of what's going on there when it says that, uh, that there were those who appeared with him, Moses and Elijah in verse 30. They appeared in glory. They spoke of his departure. John the Apostle was there to experience this event. And this is one that he reflected on when he wrote the Gospel of John. So in John 1, he said, We saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter was there. He wrote about it later as well. He says, We didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Needless to say, John and Peter were deeply impacted by what they saw that day on the mountain. This is, they were writing decades, years after the event, and they are still saying, we saw it. We saw what it was like. So while we can't exclusively, or excuse me, we can't exhaust the question and understand what happened exactly, Scripture helps us to understand what's going on here. Ezekiel in the Old Testament, one of the prophets, records for us a description of what the glory of the Lord looked like in Ezekiel 1. It sounds very similar to what happens here in Luke. Daniel in Daniel 7 gives us a close parallel. The similarities are striking between the Ancient of Days as described in Daniel 7, who is the Lord, and what occurs here with Jesus. There's white clothing, a blazing countenance, frightening appearance. So what does all this tell us? Why does this happen? It tells us Jesus is more than a human Messiah. Jesus is more than a human deliverer. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. This should have been a clue to the disciples that Jesus was going to far outstrip their expectations of an earthly deliverer. Jesus is going to do something far more important, something more fundamental than could be accomplished by just some earthly leader to come and lead a revolt. He's going to reconcile human beings to God. That's what Jesus came to do. A mission that only God, only God himself could accomplish. This passage also has numerous parallels to the events of the Exodus. Moses is present. A cloud represents God's presence is there. There's mention of tabernacles, of tents being made. It took place on a mountain like the giving of the law. Uh, The other big connection I'll make in a bit. But you'll remember that 
when Moses went up on the mountain, he met with God himself. And when he came down from the mountain, his face shone. That shining of the face reflected glory, much like the moon reflects the, the, the light from the sun. Moses met with God and his face shone. You could tell. But here, what we see, this is the glory of Jesus himself. It's not reflected glory like the moon. This is a central glory like the sun. Moses experienced a glory outside of himself, shining on himself, and other people saw it. Jesus showed forth the glory that was in him, and other people saw it. This is the glory of Jesus unveiled. He's showing it. So what kind of practical implication is the glory of Jesus? I mean, is this just something nice to think about as we gather together on a Sunday? Okay, Jesus showed his glory. Wonderful. That's really neat. But I want to say and put before you this morning that there is nothing, there's nothing more practical than the glory of Christ. There's nothing more practical than the glory of Jesus. You know, the goal of practical application, the goal that pastors have, that Jeremy has, that when someone comes and speaks to you, the goal that we have is transformed lives. That's what we all want. You and I all, we've been through a long week. You know, that week has ended. It's a new week. Sunday, we're beginning it by worshiping Jesus. What we desire for our week is to have what we hear here on a Sunday impact our life, change us, make us different. Our goal is to be more like Jesus. You know, someone could stand here and lay out rule after rule after rule, and you could actually attempt to follow them. But unless our souls are engaged in being transformed by Christ, then we're merely making legalistic changes to fit a certain lifestyle. More than that, the commands of Christ will become burdensome and overbearing to us if that's what we have. But if we have been captivated by the glory of Jesus, if we've been captivated by the glory of Christ, then the imperatives, the commands, they will be sweet to us. They'll be sweet incense to us, calling us out of the sludge and the garbage of everyday life and calling us into the pure cleansing water of Christ's glory. This is exactly what Paul was saying when he said in 2 Corinthians. He's talking to them and he says, We all... With unveiled face, behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. This is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. He's saying to them, we all, we, we have unveiled face beholding the glory of Jesus, and that's what transforms us. That's what changes us, the glory of Jesus. So how do we do that? How are we transformed? We, we behold the glory of Jesus. We're transformed into the glorious likeness of Jesus, the one who is our salvation. We meditate on things and we think about what Paul is saying when he says, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified to understand that when we behold Jesus and his glory we see him for who he is and we delight in him Jesus here on this mountain he unveiled his glory he showed his disciples 
you think you may have a handle on me. You don't. You don't. You're beloved here this morning. You may think you have a handle on Jesus. You don't. You don't. He will do terrifying things in your life. He will call you out of darkness to walk in His light. And that's not just when you become a believer. He will continually call you to walk and to get up out of the sludge that you're in, out of the unbelief that you're in, and to walk in faith in Him. That's what He calls us to do every day. Jesus unveils His glory. He shows it to His people. But also, secondly, this story, this account also shows us His mission being disclosed. He showed us what His mission is. This is great. The mission of Jesus is clearly shown here. Jesus and Moses and Elijah are there on the mountain talking. I mean, look at what's said there in verse 30. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, this is an obvious and clear reference to his death that he is going to endure in Jerusalem. Here in the midst of this incredible inbreaking of Jesus' glory, he's talking to Moses and Elijah, and what does the conversation turn to? The cross. In the middle of Jesus showing his glory to Peter, James, and John, he's speaking there with Moses and Elijah. His glory is being shown, and what does he talk about? He talks about the cross. There can be no appreciation of Christ's glory apart from the understanding of the cross. The glorious Christ is the crucified Christ. I mean, think about it this way. If it were any other way, we would be consumed. If Jesus came in His unmitigated glory we would not, nobody would be able to stand before Him. None of us. It is for our good that the glorious Lord is the crucified Lord, the risen Lord. For us, His glory is seen most clearly in the fact that He is the crucified and risen Lord. It's in that complex of events that He showed us to be our Redeemer, our Savior, our Rescuer. I wonder what they said on the mountain. I wonder what Moses and Elijah talked about with Jesus. But God determined that we don't need to know that. He determines that that we only need to know the subject of their conversation, which was the cross. I wonder if you ever noticed and ever thought about the wording of the sentence there, because it's quite awkward. You know, it says in verse 31, they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Have you ever thought, how do you accomplish, how do you fulfill a departure? How do you accomplish a departure? You should know, and maybe some of you have references in your Bible, that the Greek word for departure there could be translated, and is more literally, exodus. So thus the verse that Jesus and Moses and Elijah were standing, it, it could read that they were speaking of his exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, that makes a little more sense, doesn't it? Jesus, the divine Son of God, has set out to accomplish an exodus. Right. The exodus of God's people. 
Whereas in the Old Testament, the Exodus was God's people being rescued from Egypt, from a land of slavery, being brought through its wilderness and temptations and trials, and being brought into the promised land, a land flowing of milk and honey. In this new Exodus, brought out by Jesus' substitutionary death, God's people are being rescued from bondage to sin and Satan, brought through the wilderness of this world and all of its temptations and trials, and ushered into His presence spending an unending joy, eternity, and bliss with God Himself. That's the exodus that Jesus was going to accomplish. I mean, realize, who is it that accomplishes this exodus? It's Jesus. He accomplished it. He started it. He finished it. It was all Him. The text doesn't say exactly how he's going to do it. It just says that they were talking with him about, about his exodus that he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Also, the new exodus that Jesus is accomplishing is greater than the exodus of old, of the Old Testament. This is an exodus that lasts eternally. This also helps us to see that the death of Christ, it was not something that happened without his approval. Here he is, before his death, talking about it talking about the exodus that he's going to accomplish. They were discussing beforehand what would happen. Understand, our Savior, the glorious Lord, he didn't have his life taken from him. He laid it down of his own accord. It was his will. He would have never died, but because of the great love with which he loved us, he willingly laid down his life for us. He willingly gave up his spirit unto death so so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live. He lived the life that we couldn't live. Perfect, sinless life, always in perfect submission to his Father. And he died the death that we should have died. He who knew no sin became sin that we, that you and I, might become the righteousness of God. That is Jesus' mission. That was his purpose to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, here this morning, if you're not a believer, I plead with you, turn to Jesus. He is the almighty, glorious God. Yet He's the almighty, glorious God who laid His life down and died so that you, so that you might have forgiveness of your sin. Peter, as usual, didn't understand all of this. He saw the glory. He thought it was the end. So he asked and said, you know, can I, can I build three tabernacles for you? He probably thought this was the end of time and, and this was what he felt would be good for him to do. I mean, in one sense, what Peter does is good. He wanted to serve. He rightly understood the power of Jesus, that, he, that the power of Jesus would conquer all other kingdoms. He saw it. He knew it. And his credit, he didn't put himself or his apostolic associates on the same level as Jesus, Moses, or Elijah. I mean, he didn't say, should I build six tabernacles? He said three. But he still, he still had not grasped that Jesus was going to suffer. Jesus was going to suffer. He still did not get that the glory of Jesus is something not to be considered apart from the cross. Peter wanted to serve. And yet that wasn't what he needed to do right at that time. You know, we may think good thoughts about Jesus. Joel Osteen may tell us to think good thoughts about Jesus and about ourselves. 
That's not what we're called to do. We're not called to think good thoughts, to have good intentions. That's not just what we're called to do. What stood out to me as I've studied this passage more and more is that the cross, the cross is central to everything that Jesus came and did. The cross was central to everything. Jesus is our everything. Without him, we have nothing. Everything that we think about, everything we do in our endeavors for him, they all must be cross-centered. They all must have as their focus the gospel, the cross. So in this passage, we see the glory of Jesus unveiled. We see his mission, but we also see the Savior revealed. We see the Savior revealed. The cloud overshadows all of them on this mountain. And as we have seen, and as I've said, this is a reference to the Exodus account. The cloud overshadows them. The cloud, of course, represents the very presence of God, the presence of God there with them. God the Father came down in the cloud. He surrounded his people and he proclaimed once again. He spoke. He proclaimed once again to all who were there. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. These words recall the words of Jesus at his baptism. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. Verse 35, I think, is the climatic verse of this passage. Everything leads to this verse and everything moves away from this verse. So all the Jesus face changing, Moses and Elijah there, his clothes being dazzling white, them talking, all of it leads to verse 35 when this cloud comes and overshadows them. A voice speaks, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. If I had to sum up this whole passage in just a line or two, I think I would say that this passage shows us the vital truth that God the Father adores and cherishes His Son. He wants us to know Him. He wants us to listen to Him. Jesus was comforted here. You are my son, my chosen one. Not because this wasn't information that he didn't already know, but he needed this encouragement for the journey that he was about to undertake. You know, after this in the Gospel of Luke, everything in the Gospel of Luke, it, it, it leads to Jerusalem. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and then he tells these parables and does these healings. All of this, Jesus needed to hear, you are my chosen one, not because he didn't know it, it was a reminder, it was encouragement for the journey that he's undertaking. We need to know it so that we can situate our priorities under God's priorities. If the Father speaks out of a cloud to say, this is my Son, my chosen one, if the Father adores and cherishes Jesus, His beloved, how can we do any less? What do you have in your life that you would love and adore and cherish more than Jesus? What's worth it? Are God's priorities your priorities? Do you know something about how the world works that God doesn't? You know, a good way to, to test yourself on this is to, is to ask yourself this question. If you were able to go to heaven, and let's assume, though this isn't true, but let's assume that all of God's power resides in his throne, okay? 
So you're able to go there. You throw open the throne room door. You open it. You see that for a moment, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, that he's not on his throne. And so you think to yourself, oh, if I sit there, I can, I can be God. So let's imagine for a second that you do this. You sit on the throne. What in your life would you change? What would you change? Answer that question and you know what your God is. What would you change? Because essentially you're saying, God, I don't think you're doing a good enough job on your throne, so this is what I would like for you to change. This is what I would like to do. What in your life do you cherish more? If you were sitting on that throne, what, what would you do? That'll show you what you cherish. God the Father speaks and says, this is my beloved son. Is there something more beloved in your life than Jesus? The command, of course, is for us alone. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. You, like me, we are all We all are confronted daily in our personal lives, our lives at work, our church lives, our family lives, to listen to the things around us. There's so many things clamoring for our attention. Something is always vying for our affection, for our attention. God the Father lovingly commands us here. He says, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Give your ears to him. He's the chosen one. He's the one with whom I'm pleased. He's the one who I love like no other. He is the Savior. His glory has been revealed. You know, for you this morning, what more important thing do you have to listen to? Yourself? No. Listen to Him. God commands us to give your most alert, your most attentive, all your moment to listen to the Son. The voice speaks out of the cloud. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Then, as if to reinforce the centrality of Jesus, the story ends. Look at what happens in verse 36. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. You know, sometimes we read the Bible so quickly and we know what's happening that we just we go over something like that. But think about Peter, James, and John seeing all of this. They, they hear it. They see the conversations. They see Jesus' glory, bright, white, dazzling. They hear the voice speaking out of heaven. They were terrified. And then, suddenly, it's just Jesus standing there in front of them. They kept silent. They reported to no one in those days the things that they had seen. I mean, just think. There's this great display. It comes to an end. The disciples look up, and right there in front of them is just Jesus. He alone remains with them. He's the one. He's the way to God. He's the sole mediator. The point of this event was not for the disciples to think, Did you see Moses? He looked a lot older than I imagined, but man, Elijah was looking pretty good. The point was not for them to ponder extraneous details. The point was them 
for them to ponder the infinite and majestic Jesus. That's why John says, we saw His glory. Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We saw it. The point for us, it's the same. The point for us is the same. To come away from this passage with greater affection, greater appreciation for the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. One thing every person on this planet, whether Christian or not, needs to hear is Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth giving up the so-called pleasures that you enjoy while doing your own thing. Jesus is worth you having your kingdom knocked down to shambles. Jesus is worth someone selling their possessions, moving to the, the middle of the jungle so they can share the gospel with others. Jesus is worth you giving up your retirement and just sitting and thinking that you're going to move to Florida and enjoy the warmth there to stay here in New England and share the gospel with people. Jesus is worth going to your friend or your relative or your neighbor in order to love them with the hopes of telling them about him, about the gospel. For Peter and John, or for Peter, Jesus was worth giving up a successful fishing business in order to follow him with all of his life. For John, Jesus was worth living as an exile exile on an island. For James, Jesus was worth martyrdom in the prime of his life. Jesus was worth it all. They saw his glory. They knew who he was. Is he worth it to you? Is he worth it to you? The takeaway from this passage is simple. Behold the glory of the Lord Jesus. That's what we need. To not have our minds compelled and frustrated and upset and worried about what's happening with our jobs, what's happening financially, what may happen to our house, what may happen with the new presidency. The takeaway from this passage is behold the glory of Jesus and all those things will fall in their place. Read about Jesus in his word. Read about what he did. Don't allow it to be mundane and unaffecting. If it is for you, if you read His Word and it doesn't, it doesn't grip your heart, pray. Pray that God would change your heart. Read books that make much of Christ. I saw some that, that, uh, that were in your bookstall. I saw some in the library. Your church has good resources. Go to God's Word, the Bible. Pray that God would help you to see His glory and that you would be transformed by it, just as Paul said we are to be. Feed your soul. Feed your soul with the glory of Jesus. For that is what all of Scripture points to. The glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Why don't you take just a moment with your head bowed and your eyes closed and simply think and ask yourself what the Lord is teaching you this morning from His Word and commit that to Him.
Father, hear the prayers of your people. Father, we pray. We pray that you would help us to see and to understand the glory of your Son. We pray that you would remove the blinder from the eyes of some who are here who don't know you. Lord, help them to see who you are, Jesus. Pierce upon their hearts the truth of the statement of you being transfigured. And Lord, may they, they from beholding your glory be changed forevermore to walk no longer in darkness, but to walk in your light. Father, I pray for South Shore Baptist Church. I pray that you would bless them. Lord, I pray that you would help them to continue to love your word. I pray that your glory, Jesus, would be what they live for and desire, to glorify you in all that they do with their heart, mind, soul, and strength, that they would want to love and glorify you, Jesus. I pray that you would do that in this church. Bless them and bless us, Lord. As we have begun this week worshiping you, let us continue worshiping you, Jesus, for you are our all. And it's in your name that we pray this, Jesus. Amen.